Hi, Brenane. Thanks for meeting with me today. Hi, Sarah. Nice to be here. I'll just give you a quick introduction, okay? Sure. Brenane Lloyd is a public interest researcher, writer, and community organizer in Northeastern Ontario. Her primary affiliation is with Northwatch, a regional coalition founded in 1988. She's also on the steering committee with Nuclear Waste Watch and has been part of the founding of We the Nuclear Free North, a new alliance of individuals and groups opposing the transport and burial of high-level nuclear waste at a candidate site in northwestern Ontario. So, Brunane, am I right that you've been with Northwatch for quite a long time? That's right. I was one of the founding members in the late 1980s. We came out of two regional networks and created a regional coalition to have a representative voice. There were some large government processes about to launch, including the Federal Environmental Assessment Review of Atomic Energy of Kettle Limited's geological disposal concept, the burial scheme of that decade. So uh, nuclear waste and nuclear waste burial proposals have been uh, with Northwatch and part of my work uh, since that time. in broad strokes, can you tell our listeners um, what is nuclear waste? Well, nuclear waste is radioactive waste. So these are wastes that are produced. They're produced all along the nuclear chain from uranium mining, milling, refining, through to uh, power production, operating nuclear reactors to produce electricity. So there's low, intermediate, and high-level waste. I think what we're going to talk about mostly today is the high-level waste. It's the irradiated fuel or the spent fuel or the fuel waste that is produced when a uranium uh, fuel is uh, placed in a reactor. It runs in the reactor for 18 months. When it goes in, it's uranium. When it comes out, it's hundreds of different radioactive isotopes, highly, highly radioactive. And some of those radioactive isotopes will continue to be radioactive for millions of years. Some of them, it's a matter of a couple of hundred years. Uh, some of them, it's millions. So very hazardous material, uh, materials that don't exist in nature, and they have to be isolated from the environment really into perpetuity forever. Okay. So when we're talking about high-level nuclear waste, the spent nuclear fuel, um, I'm assuming from the can-do reactors, um, where in Canada is it right now? And, um, and, and what is being done with it right now? About 90% of the fuel waste, the high-level waste, uh, is uh, at reactor stations in Ontario. There are smaller volumes uh, at, Chalk, at uh, Chalk River, the research laboratory, also in Ontario, and at La Pro and um, Janty, which are uh, single reactors in uh, Quebec and New Brunswick. The huge volume, though, is in Ontario, and it's at the reactor station, Darlington, Pickering, and Bruce. And it's in one of two conditions. Over half of the waste is still in what's called the irradiated fuel bay, the cooling pool. When it first comes out of the reactor, it is so highly radioactive, it has to be moved robotically from the reactor uh, into uh, a cooling pool where the water not only cools the waste, but it also provides a shield to uh, prevent most of the radiation from 
um, uh, making its way into the environment. So over half of the waste is still in the irradiated fuel base, slightly less than half has been moved into dry storage, into uh, um, dry uh, containers uh, that are constructed at the reactor station. Let's take the one at Bruce, because it's the biggest. Um, like how, how big are these cooling bays? Well, they're very big. They have to be very big because they have to be able to uh, accommodate all of the waste that's in the pool for storage, for cooling purposes, and all of the waste that's in the reactor. Now, this is an issue. There's a real safety question at Ontario reactors right now as to whether all of the reactor stations actually have enough room in their pools to completely empty um, empty the reactor in the case of uh, of an emergency. So they're very, very large. We have a high volume. There's uh, over 58,000 tons of waste exists at the reactor stations. That's a combination of the dry and the wet storage. So we're talking very large volumes. So who owns this waste? Well, the waste is owned by uh, whoever, whichever provincial utility produced it. Uh, in the case of Darlington, Pickering and Bruce, uh, Ontario Power Generation owns them. Even the waste that is being uh, generated by Bruce Power, which is a private consortium, Ontario leases them the reactors. So the people of Ontario uh, get to own that waste. So OPG, on behalf of the people of Ontario, take ownership of the waste generated by Bruce Power. Then there's a smaller volume uh, owned by Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. So that would be uh, the federal government. So the people of Canada, not just the people of Ontario. So they're all owned by uh, these public entities. So ultimately, you know, you can debate who's paying for it. Is it the ratepayer or is it the taxpayer? Um, but they're all being, uh, uh, it's all being publicly funded. And so who um, regulates um, the safety and the decisions around um, around this high-level nuclear waste? What's the, regu the regulator? I'm assuming there's like an arm's length government regulator? Well, there's a regulator. It's called the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, and they are the regulator. So as the regulator, they issue the licenses. They're responsible for things like safety inspections uh, and so on. Um, by our assessment, they're, uh, they're, they're not as independent and not as arm's length from the industry as they should be, uh, could be. And there's a number of issues with the regulator, too, in terms of uh, transparency, access to information. I'll give you an example. Some of the low-level uh, waste is actually moved around. Some of the low-level waste from Ontario is sent to the US for what they call processing. Uh, and then the residual, what's left over, is to be returned to, uh, to, to the source. Um, but the way the license is set up, there's nine different sites, three different companies are all on the same license. And so waste from, um, theoretically, according to the license, waste from uh, Bruce Power could go to Tennessee for processing and be returned to the uranium refinery in Blind River. Well, that's not going to happen. The uranium refinery in Blind River doesn't 
you know, doesn't have storage capacity. But according to the license, that's, you know, that potential is there. We followed this up with the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. We wanted the details on how they were tracking this, uh, these waste shipments, uh, particularly waste shipments leaving Canada and returning to Canada. And in effect, they told us that they're not. Uh, they're not tracking it. They're not tracking it. Uh, <laughs> if they are tracking it, um, they're not disclosing that. So uh, there, that's just one example. There are so many examples of where um, we are in a situation where uh, the regulator, it's difficult to determine if it's doing the job that I think Canadians would expect it to do, like track where the waste is, where it's, sure. been, where it's been, um, but also tracking certain things or it's very difficult to get disclosure on things like um, uh, the condition of the irradiated fuel base. Uh, mm -hmm. We can see in some of the licensing documents that there are issues around degradation, debris in the fuel base, things like that. Very difficult to get actual information. We've had instances where we've had technical experts standing by to assist us in a license review and we were not able to get the technical information that we needed to allow them to do that third-party review. Renine, you're, you're talking about the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, but what is the Nuclear Waste Management Organization in relation to the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, what is the NWMO, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, and, so, and what is their what is their um, regulatory power compared to the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission? Well, they're a very different kind of a kind of an entity. The Nuclear Waste Management Organization, basically, it's the it's a uh, it's a it's a consortium of Ontario Power Generation, Hydro-Quebec, and New Brunswick Power. So under the Nuclear Fuel Waste Act passed in 2002, the federal government said to the nuclear industry, organize yourselves, create an organization to develop an approach uh, and potentially eventually deliver that approach for the long-term management of high-level radioactive waste of the spent fuel. And so, the nuclear industry organized themselves and called themselves the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. So they're comprised of Ontario Power Generation has the most seats on the board and the most influence, obviously, pays in the most money because they've got the most waste. But Hydro-Quebec and New Brunswick Power also have uh, a role and Atomic Energy of Canada Limited pays into a fund that the NWMO spends. Um, okay, and what so, is their plan, Bernane? What do, what do they? What is their fabulous plan to do with the nuclear waste? So their plan—it's not very different <laughs> from the, uh, you know, the concepts of the '70s and the '80s, and then we saw again in the '90s. Their plan is to uh, bury the high-level waste uh, in an underground facility or underground repository. So basically, sink some shafts, shoot some tunnels out, carve some rooms out of the side, put the waste in there. Uh, and back out and walk away. That's so that's called a deep geological repository. Yeah. What are the, what are your? It sounds like you're not a big fan of this DGR uh, idea. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the deep geological repository uh, idea. 
Uh, it's a concept. It's never been done anywhere in the world. There are several countries studying it, uh, but none have actually implemented it. Uh, and there are lots of issues with this idea of burying waste. I mean, the case right now, they're looking at a, at a, they have a candidate area in northwestern Ontario. So a first issue from a northern Ontario perspective is they will be transporting two to three trucks a day for more than 40 years. We'll be bringing high level radioactive waste uh, transversing the entire region. So that's an issue. But when you get to the deep geological repository itself, there are many, many uncertainties around how long and how much uh, of the waste will actually be kept in the deep geological repository. So the idea is these multiple barriers. So you have the fuel, then you have a container, then you have some fill, then you have the rock. Well, each of those barriers has uncertainties uh, associated with it. There are big questions about will it actually keep the waste? Will it actually keep that radioactivity, those radionuclides contained? And particularly, will it do so into perpetuity? You know, there's uh, lots of studies showing that the containers and the NWMO has come up with this idea that they'll only use three millimeters of copper coating on the container, much different than other jurisdictions going down a similar road. Uh, but there's real issues around the copper corrosion and the steel liner and how the, the steel liner may actually contribute to, co to the corrosion of the copper. Lots of issues around the integrity of the container. Then they propose that they're going to fill it with a bentonite. They usually describe it as a bentonite, a clay filler. But in fact, it's more likely uh, going to be, and in most cases, it will be a mix of bentonite and sand. The idea is that the bentonite will get wet and it'll, you know, once it's saturated, it will swell and it will block those radionuclides from exiting uh, the container or the, you know, the inner, uh, the inner uh, containment system. Mm -hmm. um, but lab studies show that that's not actually, there's lots of questions about that just in terms of the effect of the heat uh, the radiation, there will be gas pressures build up as a result of microbial activity and the corro corrosion, the degradation of the metals. So there will be outward pressures. Uh, so lots of issues about uh, whether that fill will work. And then you get to the rock. Well, it's Canadian Shield, extremely variable. Uh, and for decades, the industry painted a picture of finding a single rock, a single rock formation. We used to sort of uh, half humorously call it the perfect Pluton. And that <laughs> large rock formation would contain the repository. It would be constructed within the single rock and that would provide uh, another barrier. Well, once you've disturbed that rock, it's no longer like the rock it was before it's disturbed. There's all kinds of things happen around excavation damage zone and increasing fractures and fissures. Then you add that heat and gas pressure from things that are happening inside the repository, likely to mean more fracturing, more fissioning. And it's the Canadian Shield. It's extremely variable. But now okay. the industry has said, oh, well, we're actually going to go with something called adaptive repository layout. And now the idea is that they'll sink a shift and they will basically stitch a number of rock formations together using tunnels and connecting corridors 
at depth. So even the 1970s uh, original idea of that single rock formation is gone. Uh, so, uh, you know, in, in to boil it all down, it's, you know, from our assessment, it's not a question of will it work? It's a question of how soon will it fail and what will the consequences be of that failure? Will it be small amounts of release or will it be large? Will it be right. in the century or will it take several centuries? But those are all reasons to really walk away from this idea, not to walk. Yeah. It sounds like a it sounds like a giant experiment. Um, and if the experiment goes bad, there's no way to fix it or retrieve it. Um, just just out of curiosity's sake, how deep are they planning on on going with these? You know, say compared to some of the deepest mines, like in Sudbury, is it well, as deep or deeper? They're saying five hundred to a thousand meters. So okay. not as deep as many of the mines. Um, but, you know, I think any miner knows that water goes into mines. And yeah. so um, and it's, hot down there. it's hot, it's wet, uh, and, uh, and it's dangerous. Okay, so um, so the so the 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 kind of quasi capitalist, um, but also publicly owned um, uh, OPG is mostly in charge of deciding what happens with this nuclear waste, um, and and they're only looking at DGR. But what are what are some of the alternatives if they were to kind of reopen the possibilities? Well, what, what is the rolling stewardship? Well, rolling stewardship is a is an idea that you uh, you mean it, it it's a guardianship. So it's acknowledging that these wastes are a problem forever, and that the waste should be kept in a condition where, um, as problems emerge, they can be resolved. As technology potentially develops, newer understandings can be applied. So I think, from our perspective what you need, what is essential? It is essential that the waste be isolated from the environment into perpetuity. We know a DGR won't do that. It's just a question of how, how, how soon and how badly will it, you know, will it fail? Um, so it needs to be isolated from the environment into perpetuity. Um, a system to a, you know, to have confidence in the system, uh, you need to be able to that system very, you know, very effectively in great detail and with great reliability. You can't do that in a DGR. You can do that in uh, at surface or near surface systems. So you need to be able to monitor it. You need to be able to measure performance and you need to be able to repair, re-encapsulate, uh, remediate uh, when some part of the system fails. Um, so the, the, the approach needs to combine uh, that notion of long-term guardianship, rolling stewardship, and you know, very practical um, technical solutions that allow us to monitor uh, and respond um, when, contain when containment starts to fail. And uh, you know, right now, the waste, as I said earlier, most of the waste is staying in the irradiated fuel bay much longer. That's where it's the most vulnerable 
to human error, to loss of power, loss of water, uh, malevolent acts, terrorist acts. So what we need to do is get the waste out of the pool uh, and into dry storage. But that dry storage right now, uh, by our assessment, is substandard. It's sort of in a uh, uh, warehouse-like container, a building structure, and then the dry storage casks within that, which are, um, you know, industry says they're good for 50 to 100 years. Uh, <clears throat> we haven't been able to get the, the, the technical specifics to actually be able to get the systems in use in Ontario evaluated. That's one of the instances I referred to earlier where we yeah. had a technical expert available to review and we couldn't get the specifications to actually carry out the review. But we accept <laughs> that they're relatively secure, but we think that there are improvements that can be made in the site in terms of uh, the layout, uh, the way the wastes are um, placed on the site. For example, they're building new dry storage containers at Pickering and they're putting them immediately on the water's edge, which is not oh. optimal placement because then they're most vulnerable to both extreme weather events and uh, and intruders, terrorist attacks. So bring them back inland, inshore from the lake and yeah. harden them and disperse them and uh, carry on with the study of containment, uh, looking to constantly improve those systems. Bernine, where can we go to learn about this other option to DGR, a, a, a management or rolling stewardship option? Well, there's a couple of different websites. One I'm going to recommend is nuclearwaste.ca, which is a switchboard site. It All it does is it provides links to other organizations and agencies where you can find all kinds of information about uh, nuclear waste and uh, and uh, issues and responses to it. Then there's another website called nonuclearwaste.ca. No as in I know about that, K-N-O-W, nuclearwaste.ca. And uh, on that site, there's a, a page about geological repositories and there's a page about alternatives and you'll find more information there. Okay, I'll make sure to link that in the information. doing another podcast or quite a few other podcasts hopefully about um, this new plan for small modular reactors but I'm wondering if you can just kind of create a bridge for us because um, it's starting to seem like maybe the people who own this waste um, are interested in monetizing it and they talk about about recycling it even though it's so highly radioactive um, what can you tell us about the actual safety of, of that kind of an idea? So I don't think reprocessing the waste would actually monetize it because it is a ridiculously expensive uh, uh, effort. Um, so reprocessing will not save money. Uh, it'll cost. It's you know hugely expensive. Uh, and it won't reduce the volume of waste. It will just change the nature of the waste. It will change it from being, uh, you know, in terms of Canadian waste, it will change it from being a solid form, can do uh, fairly well characterized radioactive waste to a, uh, a liquid waste. And 
you know, any other reprocessing site around the world, you think of the most notorious sites in terms of nuclear contamination, Sellafield, Hanford, uh, La Hague in France, those are all reprocessing sites. Reprocessing is a, it, it, it's a dirty, dirty business. Plus <laughs> reprocessing involves uh, separating the different radionuclides, the, uh, you know, pulling them out from the mix, so to speak, including plutonium, which is a weapons material. So the proliferation risk around reprocessing is really significant. So Canada has always, you know, had a policy against reprocessing, particularly commercially. And it's really shocking now to have the federal government, uh, you know, swinging back and forth between silence on the reprocessing and proliferation risk to cheerleading on small modular reactors, knowing that some of them include this option of uh, so-called reprocessing. So basically it's not, it, you know, it, it's not going to be a good road to go down. Hmm. Wow. That sounds like I've got um, ideas for about 400 more episodes here. <laughs> <for me. laughs> And maybe we'll have you on again um, to dig in a little bit deeper into um, the actual sites. I, I know there's one planned for Tiverton and one planned for um, Reva Lake, um, which is close. It's in, it's northern Ontario. What's the kind of biggest town that's closest to that proposed DGR? Yeah, the two sites that they're investigating, the Nuclear Waste Management Organization is investigating is Teeswater, which is in the municipality of South Bruce. So a little bit a little bit away from Teeswater, from Tiverton, which is where the Bruce Nuclear Generating Station uh, is located. Uh, and then there's the Revel Lake area, which is between Ignace and Dryden. So about 300 kilometers west of Thunder Bay, between Thunder Bay and Kenora are the two larger centers. Uh, and uh, yeah, so in the heart of Treaty 3 territory, in the heart of Northwestern Ontario, what they call sunset country. Yeah, and to learn about that specifically, we'll go to We the Nuclear Free North website. And I'll put all those links to everything that we've talked about in this episode um, in the information about this. And um, I, I really appreciate you coming and talking with us about this, Bernane. Great. Wonderful. Glad to do it, Sarah. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.